0: You're listening to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation on Monocle 24, the programme that puts the future of working life firmly in the spotlight. This week, we're logging into FUSE Digital 2020, a forum for learning and collaboration where the C-suite, thought leaders, entrepreneurs and academics converge to explore some of the challenges on the horizon for workplaces around the world. Over 24 hours and spanning multiple time zones, Fuse 2020 set out to engage with three key fields of inquiry – the skills mismatch, the inclusion imperative and negotiating the complicated interface between human and machine. Across a series of workshops, ideation sessions and fireside chats, key thought leaders and decision makers joined forces to engage directly with the issues that stand to shape organisational and individual success in the future of work. Today we'll explore those ideas, hear from those decision makers and ask what the lessons leaders and individuals should take away to best navigate the currents of a period of unprecedented change. That's all ahead on this week's edition of The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. We start today with Cynthia Hansen, head of the ADECO Group Foundation. Deeply engaged with the conversations taking place around the challenges ahead, she's also a key figure behind Fuse 2020. So, how did Cynthia and the other organisers identify those three crucial topics under discussion the skills mismatch, inclusion and diversity, and the rapidly shifting relationship between human and machine?
1: We had actually done some consultation and a research piece to look at what were the pieces around the future of work that were not being effectively solved by individual players, by government, by civil society, uh, and by academia. And so through that consultation and the research, we came up with those three topics. And then we further tested them through uh, the series of the three podcasts, sorry, three webinars that we did uh, under the Fuse banner earlier in spring during actually the, the COVID lockdown to make sure that they did resonate with top decision-makers and the feedback was very strong that those were things that were top of mind for everybody and that merited this kind of multi-stakeholder approach to finding solutions. The primary idea behind Fuse and what really sets it apart from other kinds of events is that it was focused on bringing together decision-maker level people and focusing in on the co-creation of concrete solutions to those particular challenges. So rather than bringing people together for an interesting conversation or to just share best practice, the idea was to come together, roll up your sleeves and co-create solutions. So that's why we specifically chose decision makers from across government, business, civil society, and academia to come together as peers to do those working sessions. When we set out Fuse, we tried to create really a burning platform of these are things that are going to impact every organization, every employer. If you don't at least spend some time, energy, money looking at these, then you are likely to be left behind, Mm -hmm. that these are things that will impact your competitiveness, your ability to be a going concern. And so I think that urgency is clear, I think, often where organizations and leadership teams fall down is that theory of change. How do we actually get there? And so I think our role was not so much to keep reinforcing the burning platform, but rather to give some tools for how you could move forward.
0: It's a proactive approach, driving change rather than simply reacting to it. So what is the role of C-suite, leaders from the world of business, in engaging with these issues proactively?
1: So I think it it's something where they have to give the mandate that a company or an entity wants to actually change and adapt to be nimble, to look at how to leverage the change that's happening in the world. So I think they need the ability to give that mandate, but then I think they need to model the fact that they themselves are open to change. And so if you're giving the mandate, but you're not doing it yourself, or you're doing it yourself, but there's no overarching mandate, then I think it makes it much more difficult to actually drive that kind of change within an organization. And I think in complement to that, there's also this issue of, of living with ambiguity and again, modeling this ability to live in ambiguous times, to be flexible and nimble, to be reactive, um, but to use that reactivity to then drive change. It's not just reacting passively, but actually to look at how you leverage that in order to be a forward-thinking, learning organisation. I think that's really the key piece that the C-suite plays. Fuse
0: 2020 was something of a break from the conferences to which we may have grown used over the years. The event pivoted to a digital iteration to accommodate the public health concerns of the day. We may have grown used to the productive interplay of large forums and smaller sidebar conversations at conferences that have shaped strategy and policy in the past, But with guests logging in digitally, there was less opportunity to mingle, allowing people to engage more clearly with the matters at hand. Does Cynthia think this model reflects the urgency of the matters under discussion? Has the time for conversation passed?
1: I think there is a time and place for conversations because there is a need to sort through and sift and digest the information about what's out there. But I think a lot of organisations get stuck in making that transition between the conversation stage and the the ideation and action stage. And so what we were hoping is we can bridge that. So there were a lot of conversations that did happen in the context of Fuse, but the idea was conversation is a launch pad for for ideation and real action. So we wanted to basically give these C-suite leaders the chance to move beyond the conversations come up with those co-created solutions and then the mandate is to take it back to your own organization test it out change it iterate further see what you've learned and then bring those learnings back to the community i think one of the key pieces of chain of taking those ideas into action is really creating a clear theory of change so being very clear about what you as an organization want to achieve what would that different future look like and then walking it back in terms of if we want to achieve that we want to be that kind of organization or we want to implement that kind of change what are the pieces along the way that will get us there you know who are the people what are the levers of change what are the possible barriers what is the resourcing behind that how would we need to change our culture what are those interlocking pieces that will move us toward that desired future so i think that's the piece that's often missing There's either the tendency to rush into action without being very clear, what are you solving for? And what do you need in order to get to that change? Or to look at that change and then be completely paralyzed about how you might actually move toward it.
0: Cynthia Hansen, head of the ADECO Group Foundation there. Now we've heard a little about the agenda and ambitions of Fuse 2020. Let's take a closer look at those issues under the microscope. Over a series of fireside chats, those senior figures from the worlds of business, civil society and academia we heard Cynthia mention shared their reflections on the challenges under discussion. In the opening plenary, Hans-Paul Berkner, the chairman of BCG, outlined the importance of ensuring individuals around the world are equipped with the skills they'll need to operate productively and prosperously in the future workplace.
2: Here he is. The future is not just happening, we have to make it happen. I think when we talk about the future of work, the future of companies, of people, we first have to, of course, keep in mind that in developed countries, we will run out of people before we run out of jobs. So we need lots of people with all kinds of skill sets, not just software engineers and AI specialists and entrepreneurs but also electricians, plumbers. We need people in factories, on construction sites, in logistics, and we need, of course, people who take care of old people, people who are ill. Now, clearly, jobs become more demanding, and so we need another offensive and another initiative to really put education and skill training at the center of our efforts, as we have done in the 19th century, or beginning in the 19th century in schooling, and then in the 20th century on universities and colleges.
0: Hans-Paul Berkner there. Equipping people with the right skills may begin with education, but it doesn't end with a degree. It's clear that a willingness to engage with lifelong learning is an essential cornerstone of the kind of resilience we'll all need. Anand Chopra-McGowan is the head of EMEA at General Assembly. At Fuse, he was one of the key fire starters, a thought leader tasked with framing the challenge of the skills mismatch at the session convened to ideate potential solutions to it. So how important does he think the need for upskilling and reskilling is today?
3: I think the need for upskilling and reskilling is more important now than, than ever. And I think it's for a few reasons. Um, you know, I think most uh, organisations, most large employers um, will say that Um, the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated a lot of the forces and trends that they were already seeing. Things like digitalization, uh, things like automation, uh, these sorts of trends that were already having a really profound impact on the nature of work uh, have really started to increase and accelerate now as consumers' habits have been forced online. They were already sort of moving there, but now they've been forced there. Um, and businesses have to race to adapt. And so that means that many of the jobs that were starting to get impacted and affected by automation and digital forces um, are now seeing that happen much faster. So you now start to see, on the one hand, a large number of workers being displaced, either because of that automation or just because of the, um, uh, the economic downturn. And then on the other hand, you see uh, increasing, rapidly increasing demand for the same sorts of jobs that were kind of quietly uh, increasing over the last over the last few years. And so that skills mismatch that we've now been seeing grow over the last um, you know decade or so um, is now getting increasingly um, uh, increasingly large. And the traditional sources of um, talent, um, whether that's fighting over existing people who have these skills, or whether that's going to academic institutions um, to recruit, um, those kinds of sources are simply not able to keep up. And so uh, more uh, innovative, more fast, more effective um, uh, models of reskilling and upskilling people who are already a certain few years into their career um, is 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 now n- necessary um, at at scale, um, and this is a this is a truly global uh, phenomenon.
0: Set against the backdrop of rapid technological development, described by many as an ongoing digital revolution, it's clear that the changing toolkit of hard skills will be invaluable. But what about more human centred skills? Over the course of this series, we've heard a lot about the importance of resilience, adaptability, assets that sound more aligned with entrepreneurship than the salaryman or woman of the 20th century. Here's Anand again.
3: I think we are trending in the direction of uh, a more entrepreneurial nature of work for everyone, Um, whether you are truly an entrepreneur in in the real definition of the word or not. Um, it, that's not to say, I don't want to over-exaggerate this though, there are still certainly jobs that are uh, available today that do have uh, the structure and uh, support and, and guidance and sort of long-term uh, uh, nature that they did many years ago. If you look at the um, the shift that's taken place now in uh, the, the, the frequency with which people are changing their jobs, um, and the skills with which they they have to do so, um, the need for a more entrepreneurial mindset um, is becoming ever more prevalent. One way to put it is that the individual needs to take more control over their career than they had in the past, mm-hmm. and that could be associated with what you would previously have called um, uh, being an entrepreneur.
0: So how does this more individuated relationship to the workplace play with the top leaders and decision makers in companies?
3: I think that there is a growing acceptance and understanding in the c-suite um, of at, you know the largest companies but also but also fast-growing younger companies as well that the nature of the workforce is changing. Um, and it's changing both in terms of the demographic makeup. it's also changing in terms of, the duration for which you can expect an individual to be in their in their careers. Um, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, I was talking with a large um, uh, consumer products company here in the UK um, a few months ago and uh, they were talking about this idea of uh, alumni um, treating their employees and those who have left the organization as alumni and not just in sort of a euphemistic way, but actually building really strong infrastructure and, and, and support and sort of an ecosystem and community around these people who are actually no longer formal employees of the organization. But there was this sort of real, realization that these are people who um, are, are either potentially going to come back in some way, uh, now maybe work for a supplier to the organization and just this sort of more fluid idea of what it means to be associated with an employer. Um, I was also talking to um, a large bank um, again here in the UK and they're looking at this idea of um, talent ecosystem where many people are brought into the bank, not on formal contracts um, or or sort of like full-time contracts, but instead on short-term project bases um, to do certain uh, uh, stints of work that they might be be interested in. And I know from General Assembly's experience as well that uh, many individuals look for these kinds of projects and exciting places that they can um, do something for a little bit of time um, and, and then go on and do the same thing somewhere else and sort of build up a portfolio of experience. So I do think you're starting to see some of this. I think more broadly, the idea of investment in upskilling and reskilling um, to be able to support these more uh, fluid and um, constantly evolving uh, pathways within the organization, um, that idea is starting to really gain um, traction. we had, you know, a few weeks ago, the French telecom giant um, Orange uh, announced 1.5 billion euro to be spent in upskilling and reskilling their staff. Um, one of the one of General Assembly's large clients, um, BNP Paribas, um, is doing a, a commitment to reskill 10 percent of their workforce, but uh, uh, you know, over the next well three years. This was a five-year program that we started with them about two years ago, um, and this is this is far flung as well. Um, you know, we're working with a large organization in Saudi Arabia where um, they've made a big commitment to reskill 5,000 people um, over over four years in these sort of future forward um, uh, jobs with a sense that there's a requirement or responsibility on both government and employers to be able to foster these kinds of career pathways for people. So I think that realization is growing now, but certainly it's not, it's not everywhere. Um, we do still need to do more to get employers comfortable with the idea that what they had previously thought of as a good employee, someone who joins as a, as a graduate and stays and grows and develops with the company, um, that is really increasingly a thing of the past. And what we now have to do is create these more fluid and sustainable sorts of uh, employment pathways to be able to attract the most uh, uh, in-demand talent um, and and keep them happy and sustained and uh, and developed. Well, the reality of the world of work today, and I think this is even more exacerbated and accelerated with the uh, current economic situation, um, is that we are all learning um, as we go along. Um, there is no playbook, there is no guide, there is no school that you can go to really to, to learn how to, um, how to operate in this, in this new world of work. And so organizations and events and communities like FUSE are critical to be able to foster the kind of peer-to-peer learning um, so that where pockets of experimentation and innovation are bearing fruit, um, they have that kind of an outlet and community with which to share it so that we can all learn from each other. Um, that's really, I think, the spirit of uh, a platform like Fuse and, um, and, 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 and other, other ones like it um, that I think is increasingly necessary for us to build as part of an overall infrastructure to enable um, uh, everyone to be successful um, and learn from each other in this, in this new world of work.
0: Anand Chopra McGowan there. You're listening to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. Still to come, we'll learn more about the moral and strategic imperative for a more inclusive workforce. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. Today, we're at FUSE 2020, a community-building digital conference where delegates from across sectors join forces to collaborate on solutions to the three key challenges facing the world of work. So far, we've learned a little more about the conference and unpacked the urgent issue of the skills mismatch. Annan Chopra McGowan explained the shifting expectation of members of the workforce and hinted at the need for a corresponding shift in values amongst members of the C-suite. Let's dig into that a little more now, as we learn about an issue that's emerged at the forefront of public consciousness in recent months, the imperative for an inclusive and diverse workforce. Across a series of fireside chats at Fuse, key thought leaders shared ideas, posed questions and offered insights designed to spark inspiration. Yanina Kugel is one of Europe's most accomplished HR managers. Her experience offers her a unique insight into all the topics under discussion at Fuse. But she succinctly explains some of the shortcomings that the year's crises have thrown into sharp relief and why they matter.
4: Most of the decision makers are a rare group that is not representing the entire population of an organisation or of a country. It's not reflecting society. So many of the decisions that are taken are biased and are kind of like not taking into consideration what other people are actually experiencing in there. And if you work on that very clearly, and if you realise what is really happening, then you can take better decisions.
0: Janine Kugel there. Gina Badenoch is a founder and entrepreneur whose guiding principle is to reduce inequality through inclusivity. Like Anand, she joined Fuse in a Firestarter role to help frame the challenges of the inclusion imperative and get the juices of ideation flowing. So what, for Gina, underpins the urgency of the conversations around inclusion?
5: The reality is we are living in a diverse world. That's a reality. And I think if we choose to include it into the, our culture, and uh, that's, that's really what the conversation is about. I think more than ever uh, in an interconnected world, no, where we can have access to talent from different backgrounds, from different ages, nationalities, you know, races, uh, abilities. Why not make the most of this talent and why not uh, look into redesigning our recruitment process to allow this talent to to thrive in the organization? Because it's proven there's enough data now out there of how having a truly diverse workforce um will benefit in innovation you're going to be much more competitive more than ever the clients and customers are looking for organizations and companies that that are diverse you know i think um it's we're past the conversation of pr or corporate social responsibility it's actually now an asset it's an opportunity to really thrive as organizations and companies around the world we need to reduce inequality. And in order to do that, we need to work with the corporates to help us um, employ people who have all the talents and all the skills. They just need to be seen from what they do bring to the table. A lot of the narrative has been focused on the labels. And I keep saying labels are not the identity of people. Uh, And if anything, let's start seeing labels as an invitation and not a limitation to connect with diverse people.
0: It's becoming ever clearer that inclusivity and diversity carry their own moral integrity, that building an inclusive workforce is the right thing to do. But how do we affect the changes necessary in value systems and organisations to turn it from a conversation into action?
5: Start by acknowledging that we need to take action, not now. And by doing that, there is an opportunity to change behaviours in the organisation. It's not just about... Uh, talking about it and saying we need to be more diverse and um, you know, and, and take action. The truth is, it, I always say diversity and inclusion, there's a huge ingredient there of empathy. And it is a process, it's a journey. It's, it's not a quick fix. We are dealing with people and, and human beings. We're adorably, uh, I, I like to say, very uh, adorably complex. You know, We are complex. There's a lot of beliefs, there's a lot of fears that we have. And in order to build that diverse culture and workforce, it is a process and it is a journey. Uh, So I I say start by acknowledging we need to get there. Uh, It's not going to be an immediate fix, uh, but let's start taking some some steps. So some of these steps would be, I always say that the storytelling angle is very important in in the work we do because it's a bridge that uh, connects people from... Beyond labels, be beyond all the biases we have. So I would encourage a lot of the C-suite level to start sharing stories themselves uh, that can enable this uh, conversation within throughout the organization. Um, by doing this, and we've had examples of other companies who've done this, and that helps um, realize the value of, of diversity. No? so the having internal and external campaigns on storytelling. It based more on the individual rather than the label. Uh, it, it helps a lot. The other part of it is to revisit the recruitment process and say, okay, what are the filters we have at the moment that we can be more flexible about and, and focus more on the context of the individual? Uh, let's humanize diversity and inclusion. It's not just data. It's not just a must, uh, a must conversation, uh, something we have to do. Let's make it uh, wanting to do this, right? And to do uh, to do that and to achieve that, I, I always say, look, uh, revisit your recruitment process and see uh, what can you redesign no uh, what kind of questions you are asking? What we do a lot is blind interviews. make sure that when you do the interviews, you don't see the person first. and this happens with the orchestras, uh, they do. Blind auditions, no? Why not do that in the recruitment process? And that has proven to work because you you create a bias in six seconds. So how we outsmart that bias is changing that behavior and that's not seeing each other first. Afterwards, you, you turn around and you keep on the conversation and you see each other. But that has also helped. And I've noticed some of the leaders I've talked to, they really like that. Um, so it's an action to put in place. Um, the other part of it is understanding that for sure, uh, because of the situation, their are companies letting go of people. That's a reality. And so I say, okay, is there a, a chance that you could reskill talent? Can you invest on talent that is out there and, and need to to be skilled? No, And that's, a, I think, a way to prepare also for the future because you create a pool of talent that you can then um, include no, in, in your organization. There is a, an aspect of... Changing the narrative to be more inclusive through storytelling, revisit how you are attracting and developing your talent, and make sure that if you cannot, you're in a situation where you cannot have the talent working for you for any reason, can you be part of their transitioning into the workforce, either in the future with you or in another organization? But I think more than ever, companies have a huge opportunity to collaborate in making sure. They reskill talent. They, the talent that is is gone from the organisation. Doesn't stay in limbo land.
0: Gina Bader, there. While conversations around inclusivity are filtering through to every layer of organisations around the world, it's clear that there's also a generational element at play. More mature, experienced leaders might look beyond the ethics to inquire after the bottom line impact of a more inclusive workforce. For younger generations, however, it's clear that it's an issue that's more cut and dried. Alexandra Robinson is the president of ISEC, the world's largest youth-led organization, founded after the devastation of the Second World War to foster global values through cultural exchange and common cause. She attended Fuse 2020, where she moderated a conversation between some of the young leaders, distinguished through their success in the Adeco Group Foundation's CEO for One Month program. For Alexandra, conversations around the future of work must necessarily include emerging generations of the
6: workforce. Here she is.
7: You really cannot talk about the future of work without talking about the younger generation. Right now, more than half of the human population on earth today is under 30 years old and that's never happened in human history before and it's likely to never happen again because of life expectancy increasing and people having less children Um, and so when you talk about the future of work those future workers that future workforce those future leaders the people that are going to be existing in the reality that we're talking about and dissecting and analyzing today are the people right now that are under 30 years old Um, and so to not include them in the conversation especially when now we're talking about them being this lockdown generation, this generation that's essentially in many ways being pushed out of the workforce because of the pandemic. Um, you know, if any of us want to retain that competitive advantage that the best talent can bring to the labour market, then we have to talk about that whole generation that is going to be coming in sooner, that should be coming in now and are facing challenges.
0: How can these younger generations poised to enter positions of leadership in the future of work best communicate their values and expectations to established decision makers?
7: I really believe it's important to communicate that there's um, more than one compelling reason to take important issues like diversity and inclusion forward. I think that we just live, to use the same word again, in such a diverse world, Um, and there's so many different priorities at play, there's so many different value systems, Um, there's so many just different incentives. Um, And when we talk about a labor market, you have to be able to address some of those economic considerations. Um, And when you're speaking to business leaders of a different generation and one of the different value set, um, make your compelling case in in every aspect of, of the conversation. And so I do think that that's something that young leaders or any leader that's trying to bring change to their workforce or their environment needs to be able to do. They need to be able to speak the language of the decision makers, speak the language of those that are in the position of power um, and be able to communicate why what they want is important for everyone. Um, and I think that we know I, that's important. And then I think the way that we need to get that done is really putting the responsibility, what we believe in ISIC, and developing young leaders to be competent and able to communicate their ability to have a seat at the table and to have co-ownership of that table. That's something I've been discussing recently with with several people is that Many times when we talk about bringing change and including young people in bringing change, um, you'll have programs, organizations, individuals, institutions talk about youth as beneficiaries of their work. Um, Maybe the beneficiary of a youth employment program or the beneficiary of a training program. But I believe, and I've seen time and again, that unless youth are given a chance to co-create, co-own, co-govern these programs, um, then youth are actually not going to find the benefit as beneficiaries that we imagine they would. So young people really need to be able to own these decisions have power in these conversations to make lasting change happen.
0: Alexandra Robinson there. This is The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. Coming up, we'll learn more about the third of the key topics under discussion at FUSE 2020, as we turn to the ever-shifting collaborative relationship between humans and machines. Welcome back to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. This week we're at Fuse 2020, a digital conference convened to find solutions to three of the key challenges that lie ahead in the future of work. So far we've heard about the need to bridge the skills gap and how diverse and inclusive a workforce should be. Now let's take a look at the last of the topics, the rapidly shifting relationship between human and machine. Susan Athy is the Economics of Technology Professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. In a fireside chat at Fuse, she explained just one of the many technological developments that's been precipitated by the coronavirus pandemic.
6: Obviously, we've all had to innovate. Um, and and so we've seen people taking risks or, or making fixed cost investments that might not have felt worthwhile in the past. Um, and so one example of that is that these, I think, even these... Uh, automated training is something that, you know, people have, we've traditionally had like government programs in the U.S. where, you know, people are receiving training through kind of people who've been providing in-person services for a very long time. We've seen an uptick in interest um, around the world of governments trying to help give relevant training to their workers um, from home and remotely. And of course. We've had the ability to do this kind of remote education for a long time, but everyone, you know, the the understanding that everyone would be able to receive it and that people have the technology and could we test it and could we make it engaging and could we know that it worked? All of those things were big question marks. And now you can assume that people can figure out how to use Zoom or whichever the teams, whichever the platform is. And we can um, we can assume that both a larger scale of teachers as well as a larger scale of recipients can interact in that way. And I think we've seen a lot of acceleration in the ability to kind of automate aspects of the interaction.
0: Susan Athey there, explaining just one of the multitude of ways that our dynamic relationship with technologies continues to shift. This change raises questions over the future of work, but how does it intersect with the other key challenges we've explored today? Here's Matissa Hollister, an assistant professor in organizational behavior at McGill University. She was also a firestarter exploring the challenge that human-machine collaboration presents with delegates at Fuse.
4: There's clearly a connection between the skills gap and the human-machine interaction, because a lot of the concern about the skills is what does it what what can or will be automated and what does that mean for the humans, what is that? What breadcrumbs are us humans going to have left over once the machines can do everything, right? And so I think thinking about the human machine interaction is very important, partially because it helps clarify that. It helps us um, actually guide the development of the technology in the first place. I don't think we're in a technologically deterministic future where. technology is specifically going to go in one direction i think that's why it's particularly important in the short term that that a lot of emphasis and pressure is put towards um, an investment in auto and not in automation but in augmentation of using machines to improve the skills and capabilities of humans rather than replace them, and I think that will have a long-term impact into the future. And then one of the things that we talked about in the session was about trying to think about what what does human-machine interaction look like, and in some cases, especially in the short term, a lot of the concern is about human oversight of machines but usually when people are talking about concepts like the human in the loop, it's more of a dividing of tasks between humans and machines. And so then thinking strategically about that will clearly have an impact on um, what sorts of skills are needed in the future. And, there's a divide within that does everybody need to learn coding or only some people should other people be focusing on the kinds of things that machines are not very good at empathy, creativity, that kind of thing. And, and I think that those those are clearly connected. Um, and then in terms of diversity and inclusion, I think it's obviously, well, I obviously think it's closely tied, especially, um, especially because organizations are increasingly turning to technology as one potential fix for the diversity inclusion challenges, particularly within human resources and hiring. This is the project that I'm working on. And it has this very challenging paradox of um, many of the tools are being sold as tools that will improve Diversity and inclusion, and yet at the same time, we know almost the number one concern about these tools is their potential to exacerbate bias. And so, how can this, how can both be the case? And so, in that way, they're clearly, uh, clearly tied. And then also, in terms, similarly, going back to the question of um, how do we envision humans and machines working together in the future. Um, envisioning not just an approach that is an augmentation approach, but also an approach that doesn't leave people behind, doesn't leave some people out. Uh, I think a, a particularly challenging issue is not only inclusion in terms of social groups, but also in terms of disability, uh, questions like that, which are, are, are I think, um, there's real opportunities for technology to help, but also real opportunities for technology to just take the troubled state of the world and make it 10 times worse.
0: A frank warning there from Matissa Hollister of the risks of failing to engage with the challenge of the human technology interface in time. Mark Hauser is the co-founder and chief growth officer at Advisor AG, a digital product that uses AI to help augment and improve customer-facing communication. Does he agree that, as Professor Hollister has said, emergent tech should be viewed through a prism of augmentation, not automation?
8: I even would think in in three categories here that we can differentiate and maybe align different capabilities of the tech slash machines, computers, however we want to call it. And there, I think on the first level is where humans are clearly better. And I think there is areas like intuition, empathy, also imagination in the classical uh, thing. Or for example, if it comes to writing a movie script or a book, then there it's, it's very clear that the humans is much stronger. And there's also more, I would say almost surprising area where we also see humans are just way better when it comes to delicate touch and feel. For example, grabbing and holding a glass is very difficult for a computer but basically a child can do it and i think in this area it's clear that the the human will not be replaced by tech anytime soon then on the other extreme basically there is the machine is really just way better these are examples that we have seen in the past like maths A calculator is just massively faster and better also nowadays finding patterns in a large amount of structured and also increasingly unstructured data um, computers are just way stronger. Also when it comes to things like exact memory, what did happen, what was exactly being said, what has been um, happening a year ago or how far something is back in, in time, their computers are much more accurate. And I think in this area, we just need to embrace their support, right? As we did with calculators as we did in other earlier industrial revolutions. And that's where you say augmenting us is, is really the goal, right? That's something where we need to um, just embrace it. And then there is, I would say an in-between category where maybe both, so computers and um, humans are more comparable. For example, um, I, I would say, for example, driving cars, right? We, we see that in some situations, humans are better, in other situations, maybe machines are better, but there is a, it's a more equal, or also building stuff or doing translation of text. So there it's comparable. And I think this is a very interesting area in between the two extremes where we will see a lot of of change coming up and the ability and willingness of the human to really embrace it and just give also parts of what we used to do away and just realize that, yeah, maybe it's time for a shift here and we can focus on other stuff.
0: And when it comes to communicating both the opportunities and challenges afforded by these new tools, should technology be its own messenger? Or, as we heard earlier, should decision makers be proactive to ensure that the potential benefits of the human-machine collaboration can be fully realised?
8: Technology itself will not really bridge any skill gap or um, just communicate itself. I think what we need to be doing is become a lot more curious. I think as kids, we we are so curious, ask thousands of questions. And then by society, um, we are basically getting told, don't ask that, don't ask these stupid questions. And basically our curiosity gets a little bit killed. And I think that's, that's a big, big step that we just need to foster again, this curiosity, this willingness to learn. And there the leaders have the opportunity, um, the duty to actually give the opportunity and also that there will be a learning curve, right? Not everything will get smooth and just move from one, one side to the other.
0: Mark Hauser there. That's it for this edition of The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. We've explored the key challenges ahead in the future of work and heard from firestarters, thought leaders and visionaries to identify opportunities for collaboration and to set out the benefits of forward thinking. Join us next time on The Way to Work. Keep up to speed and find new episodes in the meantime at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more anytime about the work of the ADECO Group Foundation. Just visit adecogroupfoundation.org. That's all for this edition of The Way to Work. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks very much for tuning in.